Thanks, Radhika. <clears throat> so the, the word salvation isn't actually a religious word, right? S- salvation means rescued from something to something, and ultimately what the word really means is that you didn't fall into what you feared, and you are getting what you'd hoped for. So you're not getting what you hoped to avoid, and you are achieving in some way what you hoped to gain. Jesus just put the right content in it, right? He put the right content in terms of what we should seek or hope to avoid and what we would hope to gain. Everybody has a view of salvation, whether you think you do or not, because everybody has what we hope to avoid and what we really hope to attain. For example, have, take a look at this picture. This is an advertisement for a vacation in the Caribbean. Sounds pretty good right now for Wisconsin people. Now, you may not know to look at that, but there's at least 35 salvations in that picture. Okay? Um, If you just think there's one, it's because you keyed in on something, because that's what you're after, or or it's what you really hate. Right? Um, For example, right? One is the girl in the foreground, right? For really insecure guys, like, achieving the affection of that woman just sounds like that would make your life. And if it was a handsome-looking fellow, it would go the other way for the gender. Two, you have the family that look moderately happy. Three is the beach itself, right? Right? I mean, think about it. This picture was put together very intentionally by the advertisers, okay? Four is the boat and what it represents, which is power and freedom, right? And wealth. You get on that thing, you take it wherever you want, nobody can follow you, and you can put on that thing whatever you want. I'll carry, I'll carry a, a, you know, a really big disco ball, right? <clears throat> and then five, you see that beach all the way over there with no one on it? That subtly tells you that if you went on this vacation— Not only would you get to go on a beach, but you would get to go on a beach with no one screaming on it or no drunk idiots walking down it, right? Which is kind of funny, so because for Lexi and I, when we got together, it was like we wanted two and now we just want five, you know? Right? But we want them both. And then six is, that's creation. That's one of those beautiful places in creation, that creation and its beauty and the power of its creation points to something beyond it, right? But then it's not just those six things. It's all the possible combinations of those six things in all the possible orders, right? So you can want one, six, two, three, four, or one, right? And it gets a little dizzying and artistically complicated after a little while. But the point is, you don't just have a salvation belief. You have a how-to-get-there belief. Every one of us has a fundamental belief about salvation and a fundamental belief about power. There's a way, there's something you're looking to to get you there. And in this passage in Acts chapter 2, Luke is extremely clear with us that there is a power that if, if our idea of salvation gets properly rearranged by Jesus, one of the next questions we have to ask ourselves is, wait a second, this is a guy who looked powerless in his death, but yet powerful in his resurrection. What, what is the power I'm hoping in? 
What is the power I'm actually looking to? Because he's calling me to some dramatic moral and spiritual holiness. <laughs> to be able to love my enemies and to treat other people like I would want to be treated, which is kind of difficult, right? What? And the answer is that the power that every Christian is meant to look to is the power of God himself. That after the resurrection of Jesus, a new time was introduced into the history of the world in which the power of God himself enters into the life of everybody who turns to Christ and is himself the power of God, not only for our salvation, our transformation, but also for the moving out of the message of Jesus to the whole world. The, uh, the, what we look to to empower us to salvation is the Holy Spirit. Okay? I want to look at three things in this text. Um, three emphasis of like how we're supposed to really get that crystal clear because I don't believe that's crystal clear for us. I think we all have power schemes that we believe in. We all have like these, um, you know, we're, I mean, what's, you might, we would not even know it consciously, but we all hope in our government to keep us from the same fate of the 21 Christians that got beheaded in North Africa, right? We don't even realize how much we hope in our government, but we do. Like I said, I had friends in seminary who came from Norway, right? To Chicago, I mean, the Socialist Republic of Illinois, right? And they, they showed up, right? And they were like, they were like, you know, when we got here, we had to find an apartment, like, on our own. And we had, like, they're talking through this stuff, and I'm like, um, um, yeah. They're like, well, we're from Norway. You don't have to do any of that stuff for yourself. The government will provide all of those things for you. Like, the, the government provides so little for you here in America. And I'm like, I'm kind of like, that's one way to look at it, I guess, right? Because their experience is very different than our, my, mine, right? And so what they hoped in, what we hope for in government and from economics and from this, it's very different, right? Most of us hope in our own capacities, like our self-discipline for achievement or our sense of out-of-the-box creativity for moving around the way most people trudge through and finding the easy path, or our hope is in family and being part of this sort of dynastic tradition that like whatever we need, we can find it in the, uh, the familial people around us or declaring ourselves totally free from the expectations of others so that we'll be utterly available to access salvation and to escape the damnation of being trapped in something horrible. I think we all have these powers we look to. We don't even think about it. And the more we don't think about them, the more we're slaves to them. And what the re one of the reasons why God is so stark in his declaration that the power we're meant to look to is the power of God himself in the presence of the Holy Spirit is partly so that we'll know what we're looking to and we'll know what we're not looking to. The first emphasis in the text is to try to help us realize that this event, this like, this little chapter in the Bible that nobody reads, right, is maybe tied for first, second, or third in the most cataclysmic events that have ever happened in reality, right? Creation was kind of a big one, right? Death and resurrection of Jesus, very significant. But biblically speaking, this is right with those. This is the redemption of creation applied. 
This is the energy, the power, the direction, the one, the person who is guiding it all, who is going to create this new humanity in the church, who's going to send them out to all nations, who are going to empower them to stand up to persecution and incur godliness and all these things. It is this person, the person of God, the Holy Spirit, who's going to do all of that. This is this moment of Pentecost with this weird miracle and this Fisherman's sermon is the cataclysmic event of this era of humanity preceding eternity. You think about the event that you think is amazing, right? So like, you know, there's those of us who are like history people and we think of like the Battle of Cana or Tours or the signing of the Magna Carta or Gutenberg and the printing press and how that changed everything. Last service, um, Bob Goblin came up to me. He said, he said, you know what I think about? He said, when Pocahontas taught John Smith to smoke— Right? Because what happened? He went back to England and was the cool guy smoking and taught everybody to smoke. And they went, this is cool. And he's like, well, if you want to smoke, we're going to have to have tobacco. But we can't grow in England. We're going to have to grow in a warmer climate. Well, it's also very labor-intensive. So we're going to have to have people who do this labor, but it's going to have to be fairly inexpensive labor. So we should trade with Africa and get people from there to transatlantic this transatlantic slave trade that's produced everything that still haunts us today started with, hey, why don't you smoke this? From some exotically beautiful woman, right? Not that she's a second Eve or anything, but it's not her fault. It's, it was everybody's fault. But I'm just saying that these moments, right? Here's the point. Whatever you look to, you know, the, the 50s Montgomery bus boycott, the 60s grapes boycott, the you know, the printing press, the writing of—whatever it is. It was very significant. Those events that you—very significant events. Almost nothing in comparison to this event, to the Christian, to the Christian who believes the message of the gospel. It's just—it's just, it's vapor, right? And, and the issue here is, do you and I believe that? Right? Because part of the issue here is because we don't experience what we intuitionally believe we should be in our neurons, we have trouble believing that promise. Let me just say something. This may be provocative. I don't know. The Bible nowhere promises that you will feel the Holy Spirit. Okay? Is that controversial? The Bible promises nowhere that you will feel the Holy Spirit. I'm talking in your neurons, like you're—like, right? You'll see the effects. You'll see the effects happening in you. You will have feelings, but whether or not those feelings are the presence of the Holy Spirit or not, it's hard to tell. And so intuitionally, we believe—you know, what we believe is, is that, like, listen, Nick— if God were to show up, like, in the corpuscle here, and was there, really there, like, come on, come on, I'd be overloading. Like, it would be like the circuitry would be going crazy. I mean, I would just, like, I would feel an unsuppressible, like, explosiveness, right? And, like, that's not what I feel. What I feel is, like, pretty much what I would expect to feel if he wasn't there, basically. And listen, I get that. Okay, that's my experience too. It's my experience too. And that is a very intuitional idea. Like, it makes sense 
that we would, we just think this thought, therefore that thought. But let me just say, it's not inductive or deductive. There's no actually rational relationship between those two ideas. That if God were to live inside of you, you would feel him in your neurons. Those are, those, that's a non sequitur logically. They're not related to each other. Emotionally, we believe they must be. But there's no rational reason they should be. And there's nowhere in the Bible, in all the teaching on the Holy Spirit, and there's a lot of it, the promise is that one of the primary effects of your relationship with the Holy Spirit is that you will feel him in your neurons. It's one of the reasons why God can, can literally live inside of us, and yet we still have to live by faith. How can the Bible claim that? Right? You would think if, the, if God lives inside of you, you'd be done with faith, right? But we're not. Read the Bible. We're not done with faith. Not until full redemption enters with the return of Jesus and we see Jesus face to face. That's when we're done with faith. Somehow we have to understand God's intention of the presence of the Holy Spirit does not work according to what we want it to and does not function according to our immediate intuitional thoughts. And if we will actually believe what God actually says about himself, that won't trip us up nearly as bad. And so when he says, listen, what's actually happening right now that you may or may not be able to feel is the most cataclysmic thing that's ever happened in the history of humanity. It is, it says in Romans chapter 8, the first fruits of redemption, right? He, Paul lays it out the way it lays out biblically, that there's essentially three acts to the history of the universe. There is the creative from God's creation until the coming of Christ. There's creation, there's the giving of the covenant, there's the curse under the fall and all of that. And the main mark of this is that there's a promise of God that is entering into creation, a creation that is subjected judicially to a curse. And people groan and they hurt under it. And yet the creation is good and the creation is purposeful. But it feels futile because of that curse. The curse constantly convinces people of a lie of futility while they live under it in a creation of purpose, right? And then Jesus enters in and he creates a new reality in which the futility remains, but a, a key thing has entered to redeem people's understanding about what they're living in and pointing them forward to his ultimate return. When all of, when that, when the curse will be lifted and the creation will be recreated, and God will bring those things together in a final, eternal, redemptive future, okay? And this moment is the moment that nobody wants to think about. And very few people did. In fact, even the apostles didn't think about it until Jesus taught them to read their Bibles that way. But this moment, the one that you can't even see it until you have eyes to look for it, is the moment. And that moment that started then is now. The last days is a way we put in English a Greek word called eschaton, which just means the last time, which refers to a time period. We say days because English is kind of clunky to put in period or something like that. So we say last days, but that gets people like in the mindset of a few weeks, right? It's been, it's been about 2,000 years, right? But it just means there aren't any more time periods after this one before eternity. And that this time period between Pentecost and Christ's return is fundamentally different than any time that came before it because we have the whole promise. We have Jesus by name, crucified and risen, and we have the power of God himself in us 
launching us forward. Does that make sense? Now, okay, I gotta, I gotta keep moving here. You can also see this, not just in Acts, but you can see this in the text, right? You read the text, and there's this sort of profound event, like there's this huge rushing wind, and they've, Jesus told them twice to wait for this thing because it's so important, and then there's this flame, and the flame like divides into little flames, and it lands on all of them, and then they speak in other tongues, and there's all kinds of sort of crazy and wacky things that happen that kind of point to like, that's weird. Nothing's ever really happened like this in the Bible before, right? And then you notice that there's, as you go through, people's reactions are really stark. So at first it says that the people see this and they're totally bewildered, right? And then they're absolutely astonished. And then what's their reaction to it? A few people say, I think they're drunk. But everybody else says, what is it? What do they say? What is it? What does it mean, is what they say, right? What does it mean? Like, they realize something's fundamentally changed, and that this isn't just an event, but it has a, a significance that kind of changes everything. And they're like, this is, this is different than I expected, and it means something's changed, and please, somebody tell me what it means. Because, see, they recognized something had changed, Right? And then you get the preaching of the message, which we'll get to in just a second. And then you have the promise that Peter, that Peter shares, right? That you'll receive the Holy Spirit, you and your children, right? Which brings us to the second emphasis, and that is, is that he, the Holy Spirit, is available to everyone. That is, that God himself, his divine presence, his indwelling, and his empowering presence, so that you would never be alone, and that you would be empowered for everything Jesus called you to be and do. That that is available to everyone. It's a really strong emphasis in this text. I didn't realize this till a few months ago. I was reading through Acts and listening to it in my car, driving around, trying to prepare for this series. And one of the things that jumped out to me in this passage that had never jumped out before was how many alls and everys there were in this passage. Right? It says that, so the Holy Spirit comes, and the one flame splits into many and lands on all of them. They're all filled with the Holy Spirit, right? And then it says— all the nations under heaven were present, right? And then the people from all those nations look at the people who are speaking, and they go, they're all Galileans, right? And then Peter gets up to preach. He says, listen, God said in the last days, I would pour out my spirit on all people, right? The literal translation is all flesh, right? But it means all people, right? And then at the end of it, he says, because the significance of that is, is that in that time period, who? All who call on God, he'll receive. They'll be saved. He'll forgive them. They'll, they'll, he'll, they'll be brought in, right? And then he gets to the end, which, which Radika didn't read. We'll talk about next week a little bit more. And he says, he gets to the end and he offers an invitation, right? And he says, he says, believe this, every one of you, right? Every one of you believe and you could believe in Jesus and be forgiven and be baptized in signification of that. And the promise of what you'll receive, actually, and he doesn't say heaven, right? He doesn't say heaven. He says, then you'll be saved, you'll go to heaven, right? That actually isn't what he says. He says, not that it's not true, it's true, but that's not the bait. The, the purpose of the sermon is to explain what's happening, because it seems to matter to people. He says, listen, if you come to God, what God is going to give you is that. He's going to give you the Holy Spirit. The thing that's producing this new moment, you will personally receive, all of you. 
you, and then he says, and your children, and everybody can receive this, right? It's a cataclysmic moment. It's totally different. It's, and it's, and it's this moment because it's from that moment to the return of Christ, right? And it's for everyone. You see this in, um, in the sermon because, I mean, you've got to admit that for a cataclysmic sort of huge event, it's a little weird, right? You know what I mean? It's a little weird. You get a bunch of people speaking in strange languages, and then you get this Jewish fisherman standing up and preaching an expositional sermon out of the minor prophet that you've never read, right? But that's exactly what happens. Peter stands up, and he picks this passage that's in this tiny little book between Hosea and Amos, and he picks a specific passage that he recites from memory, and then he gives exposition to it, right? If you want to look, um, look at the passage, um, go to, uh, I think it's 1,379 in your, in your pew Bible. This is between Hosea and Amos. 1,370 something. Okay. So Joel. So basically, Joel is this sort of late prophet in the Old Testament, and he, um, this is basically his job. He goes to the Jewish people and he goes, listen, in terms of following the covenant, our relationship with God, and what God has asked of us, we are basically stinking up the place, okay? Like, we are terrible. And we just pay no attention to him. We receive everything good that he gives us, and we just basically make obscene gestures back. And God is actually not okay with this. And he has tolerated it for 500 years, okay? And periodically what he does is he's sending in these disciplines that don't totally destroy us, but make our life really hard so that hopefully in the midst of tragedy, we will rethink, right? Because most people, if they make a change in their life, you know when they do it? When things are terrible, okay? So if you're here and you are thinking about God, but you're like, yeah, listen— God's best tool for drawing him to yourself is wrecking your life. So maybe before that happens, you might want to think about So in the book of Joel, the way God has been doing this is sending swarms of locusts, right? And not the tasty kind, you know? The kind that just eat everything. And so they'd, be, they'd grow all these crops, and they'd be like, oh, we're going to have wheat, and it's going to be great. And then what happens? The locusts come and they eat everything, right? And he says, listen— he, goes, he says, God is trying to get your attention, okay? And then, and then he says, he says, listen, if you'll turn back to God, God will give you back the years the locusts have eaten. It's a really famous verse, right? For people who've just been through all kinds of tragedy, screwed up their life, and like didn't want to walk with God, and you're like, now what could God possibly have for me? Because I've got things pretty well screwed up. And what people often do, they'll take them to this verse in Joel and say, listen, this is what God is like. God is like a God who says, You've been terrible for 500 years. I have intentionally sent discipline to destroy your life and to eat up everything that there is. But if you will turn back to me, not only will I let you live, he says, I will give you back some things of the years that these disciplines have devoured, right? But then God knows they're not going to listen. So he goes, so then you're going to go into exile, blah, blah, blah. He talks about all the stuff they're going to go through, right? And then there is this, in chapter 2, there's 28 to 32, there's this section. It's the part Peter quotes. And then chapter 3 starts, and it talks about the final judgment, right? Now, people don't pay attention to this 
or no, understand its significance because nobody cares about sinners and people who are terrible being given a second chance because none of us think we are such people. Okay? So like if you have a problem at work and you're like, man, these are going bad at work and I'm having— I'd be like, okay, so what do you really need? Do you need somebody to go in there and vindicate you and like tell everybody you're right and like tell everybody else to shut up and to let you have your way? Or do you need to, me to come in there and to, to create an opportunity for you to be forgiven in that whole conflict, right? You know, most people are in the shower telling off their coworker. Like, they don't believe they're wrong, right? They don't, what they want is somebody to come and bring the smack down. So all of humanity thinks they're good people. And so they read the judgment stuff and they go, oh yeah, that's going to be great. You know, when God does that, or someone, this is going to be wonderful. And so you're kind of like, um, were you paying attention for the first two chapters? That it was all about how we are those people and that we stink and we're going to die and God's going to have to judge us and all that. Seems like a moment where people could turn to him before he brings the final smackdown would be kind of a nice— that would be a good thing, right? We, that would be good. And you see, that's what Peter is saying. Peter's saying is that if we read the book of Joel right, this, this is what is happening in Acts 2. Jesus has received—that is, he's received the right at that moment to direct the presence of the Holy Spirit at this moment in redemption history. And he's poured out the Holy Spirit— on people so that this moment can happen. One in which two things happen to everybody. One, all receive the Holy Spirit who turn to God. And two, anyone, no matter what their background, what they've done, how old they are, how long they've been doing it wrong, how young, no, no matter what, if they turn to God, He will forgive and redeem them. Everyone. That is, it's for everyone. And what Peter's saying is that when Jesus rose from the dead and retaught him how to read his Bible, and when he dramatically failed Jesus and got a little humility too, and he put those two together, he goes, right there. Don't you see it? It's right there in Joel, what's happening right now. And it's going to go on until the final judgment. This moment, right? That is, it's going to happen. It's going to be incredible. And it's going to last until the time of gathering and anybody who would turn to God ends. And God actually comes in final judgment, right? And you see, when you read Peter's sermon, those are his two points, right? He says, he, all he says is, the one to bring that in is the Messiah, and that was Jesus. And he quotes two other Old Testament passages. But what he's saying is, remember, he's, this whole sermon is an answer to the question, remember the question? What does this mean? What does the outpouring of the Holy Spirit mean? That's the question his sermon is answering. So he set, talks about Jesus, but, he sa but he's talking about Jesus in relationship to this question. What does this pouring out of the Spirit mean? And it means that Jesus the Messiah has inaugurated this thing that's happening in Joel, a moment in which all can turn to God, and in doing so, all can receive the Holy Spirit. And in receiving the Holy Spirit, they will turn to others and invite them to turn to God. And if they do, they will receive the Holy Spirit. And if others turn to God, they will receive forgiveness. And then they will receive the Holy Spirit. And on and on and on. That this has happened, and it's for everyone, right? So let's— Go to the last thing. The last thing is this, is that the power of the Holy Spirit is always moving redemption outward. And that's really important to recognize. Because see, if you try to hang on to your own theory of salvation for yourself, and you try to fit the Holy Spirit into that, that's never going to work. Because remember, the Holy Spirit 
is a powerful person. That's why, that's why we never say it, refer to the Holy Spirit as it. It's not because the Holy Spirit has a gender. It's because the English language doesn't have a neuter personal pronoun. When we say it, we're referring to an impersonal object. So even though the Holy Spirit isn't male, we say he, because that's the personal pronoun the Bible tends to use when it uses one, because we want—we don't want people to forget this is a person. So if you say, well, I want to accomplish this. This is my view of salvation. I'm so glad the power of God is available to me to get what I want. No, it's not. No, it isn't. He does what he wants. He's God. So if you don't adjust your view of salvation, he's not going to empower you to do anything. Because he empowers his view of salvation. When our view of what's good, true, beautiful, right, when we believe what he believes about what we should escape and what we should desire to attain, when those two line up, the power of the Holy Spirit flows incredibly powerfully through us and we can accomplish amazing things. But, it, but one of the reasons why so many of us have no evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit in our life is because we have not accepted the same view of salvation as the Holy Spirit. And as long as we're functioning on a different one, listen, you cannot coerce God to go along with what you want to do. It just doesn't, it doesn't tend to work. He's not like insecure so that you could guilt him into it. I mean, he's just not manipulatable. And so because of that, you've got to realize what he's doing. What he's doing is he's taking the message of Jesus that we can receive forgiveness from God when we turn to him and that we can be enormously empowered by the Holy Spirit so that God's message of redemption can be seen in the entire world. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. And he is doing with you that. Bring about an enormous sense of godliness so that there's potency to your life. Humility and actual righteousness rather than self-righteousness and honesty and courage and everything that makes your daily life better and everybody that you're around happier. But he's always still driving the message of Christ and the, and the beauty that people can have within them, God himself and the Holy Spirit, outward. So imagine for a second, you are the only being that God created in eternity past because he wanted your advice about something. Now I realize that's a preposterous hypothetical, but just go with me for just a second, okay? And so God's like, he's getting ready to work, to work history, and he goes, okay, listen. So I'm thinking of kicking off the new era of redemption with this miracle— to really get people's attention. Something that will really say, hey, this is big, this is different. Listen up. Like, listen to this. I mean, what would you recommend, right? Like, does that make sense? This cataclysmic moment, it's for everybody. Let's get their attention. Would you say, hmm, what about letting some Galilean Jews talk in obscure regional languages, other Jewish ethnicities speak? Let's really weird people out, right? I mean, think about this. Why this? I mean, Jesus did perfectly well with healing miracles, right? I mean, why not, like, heal everybody that came for Pentecost? I mean, they were the good religious folks, right? I mean, these were—there were three feasts you would come to Jerusalem for, right? Passover, which is like Christmas and Easter, you know, it's the big one. They have roasted lamb. Who would miss that, right? And then Pentecost, Penta, 50 days later, right? Which is the celebration of the first fruits, right? And then later, Succoth or the Festival Booth. That's where the, where the real Jews showed up in Jerusalem. So these are all like the real Jews. Like the, that's why they call, that's why they're referred to, did you catch it? God-fearing Jews, right? These are people who are not just ethnically Jewish. They actually believed God was there and it mattered. So much that some of them got their behinds 
to Jerusalem from, like, Baghdad. Right? I mean, that's, that's pretty devout. Hey, let's transverse a desert, a desert 40 days after I just did it. Right? So, so, why this miracle? Why not everybody gets healed? I mean, these are the good people. If you're going to heal somebody, heal them, right? I mean, what? Or you could have like a big explosion maybe, or like, you know, winning battles or something. I mean, like, why? Why this? And here's the thing. You're like, well, Nick, it's so people could hear the gospel because they wouldn't otherwise understand it because from, they're from all these strange places. That's not the reason. That did, this did not happen so that people who otherwise wouldn't hear the gospel could hear the gospel, Right? It's not that way. We think that, when I say we, I mean all the non-Latinos who speak only one language, right? Now I realize, I'm sorry, there's more of you, but like, there's some people here, right? Like people, people from, from et, like ethnic backgrounds who are like, you speak more than one language. Most Americans do not. And so that sounds weird to us. But you see, in probably the majority of the world, if you want to be an educated and successful person, you have a language you grew up with, which is your regional ethnic language. But in order to be successful, you had to learn whatever the fundamental national language of education and commerce is. And if you wanted to work internationally, you might have had to learn a third language. So for example, if you're from India, right, you may have grown up speaking Marathi in your household, right? But what do we think all Indians speak? Hindi, right? Because Hindi is the trade language of India. It's the, it's the second tier educational language, and it's the functional business language. Why? Because India has more than 80 language groups. Most of those languages are Sanskrit-based, and so is Hindi. So most of the Indian languages, people can learn Hindi without learning something like totally different. So it's like, if you already know Spanish, you can learn Italian or something. English is like just completely, totally different, right? So people can usually learn Hindi without too much trouble, right? And then if you really want to be successful, you learn English. This is true in Mexico. Like, there's um, Americans running around thinking that, me you know, well, don't they speak Mexican? No. Mexico is this big place with all kinds of different ethnicities, and people speak lots of different tribal languages. They might be from a region where, I mean, Spanish isn't their, their native language. From Mexico, right? But they learned in education, they learned Spanish, and then to live internationally, they might have learned English, right? You see, what happens after they speak in tongues in this passage? Right? What happens? Everybody speaks in tongues. People go, man, that's really neat. He's like speaking—he's speaking Libyan, right? Like North Libyan. Well, then what happens? Peter gets up and preaches, right? Look, he doesn't have tongues coming out of the side of his neck. He probably preaches in Greek or Aramaic, right? Speaking in one language, everybody understands him. Why? Because everybody already understood. All these people knew the trade language or the religious language, one of the two. He could either get up and speak Greek and everybody could understand him because Darius got his butt kicked— several hundred years previous, right? So they, there was a, a, a huge regional understanding of Greek, or because they were Jews, they had learned Aramaic as well as whatever their native language was. So they did not need to hear these tongues to understand. So, so why use them? Right? You, I mean, right? <clears throat> and here's the thing. You will know if you've ever seen somebody hear their heart language spoken in a place where the majority didn't speak it and watch them light up. It is a huge, has so much emotional weight to people. I've seen this with my mom because my mom is Italian, right? I've seen people, because there's very few people in this region of the country that speak Italian. Very few. 
So the few people for whom their heart language is Italian, when my, they meet my mom and my mom starts speaking to them in Italian, they're just, their heart rate goes up. Like they go, you speak Italian? Like we, there, there was um, one family church that brought their Italian exchange student over just so they could talk to my mom. So they could just feel better, right? You see, when God reaches even past a language everybody shares and reaches through these people into the heart language of these smaller ethnic regional languages to the people who spoke them so that they would hear the glory of God, not just in the language that they translate into, but in the language they know. He connected with them in a way that Greek was never going to or Aramaic was never going to. And it was a way to demonstrate from the very beginning that the gospel, which was a single universal truth, and the Holy Spirit, who is a person who brings a single universal power, in his divine compassion, was willing to enter into the specific tiny experience and context of everybody the gospel would go out to. So that at the very first baptism service, after they baptized 3,000 people after this sermon, you could walk to that baptism service and you probably could hear five to 12 languages within earshot of the dunking. And people wearing different clothes and camels spitting and like all kinds of different sorts of people getting baptized in the, so that in the first moment of the church, the church was profoundly multi-ethnic, multilinguistic, multicultural. It did, God did not wait until the gospel went and crossed over into Gentiles. And then later on, at the very first moment, he launches his church to be this extraordinarily multi-ethnic, albeit Jewish, church. Think about this for a second. Speaking in tongues shows up three times in Acts. You see, now, later, like, we Christians who have heard a lot about speaking in tongues and we either don't like it because it's God's weirdest gift or we think everybody should do it, right? Um, we have all these preconceived notions. But imagine you had never even heard of speaking in tongues and you're reading Acts for the first time and you didn't really know what it is. So you read it in chapter 2 and you're like, that's kind of weird, right? But you're a first century Jew or Gentile in a place where lots of languages are spoken and you pick up on that. Where's the second place it comes up in Acts, Right? Cornelius, the first Gentile believer. So Peter, who believes this is only going to go out to Jews, apparently lots of different ethnicities and languages, but Jews, God comes to him in chapter 10 and says, I want you to go to that God-fearing Gentile who's not Jewish, but, but believes in me. I want you to go and I want you to preach the gospel to him. And he goes and he preaches the gospel to Cornelius, who probably has a different heart language than him. And Cornelius speaks in tongues. And everybody there starts speaking in tongues. They, re they believe, they receive the Holy Spirit, they speak in tongues, and Peter goes, well, I guess I better baptize him. You know? You know the third place it shows up? Um, Paul wants to go deeper, he wants to go further east and deeper into Turkey. And the Holy Spirit shows up when he wants to go into Bithynia, which is in northern Turkey. And the Holy Spirit says, you're not going there, you're going go to you're gonna go to Europe. You're going to cross the Aegean. I know you have bad luck with boats. That's an inside joke for people who read their Bibles because he was in a bunch of shipwrecks. Um, and you're going to plant churches in the cities of Greece so that the gospel will spread east through the Turkish church and it will spread north into Europe through the Greek church. And, he, and, and, and the Holy Spirit's like, this is what we're doing, right? And so he does this and very soon after that, he comes back to Ephesus, which is the second largest city in the entire Roman Empire. And he finds some people that already sort of believe, right? They've received the baptism of John. And he's like, 
And the baptism of John was like, I'm wrong. Sorry, God, I'm wrong. That's like, that's what John's gospel was. Like, just tell God you're wrong. He'll forgive you, right? And they're like, yeah, we believe that. We believe like we should tell God we're wrong because we kind of stink. And, 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 and Paul's like, that's great. But there's more than that. There is a message that he's done that in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the result of that is you can receive the Holy Spirit. God in and with you all the time, every moment, empowering you. And so you'll never be alone so that the gospel can go all places. And you know what it says? It says he preached that in the synagogue for a while and then some people got hating on him. And so he moved to this little place called the Lecture Hall of Tyrannus. And he basically held church and seminary there for two years. You know what it says right after that? It says, through this, all of Asia heard the gospel. Right? In each event of speak— Now, listen, I'm not saying that's all speaking in tongues is. You read 1 Corinthians, it's clearly also a spiritual gift that God uses. Now, don't think I'm saying more than I'm saying. But here's what it's not less than. It's not less than the evidence that the Holy Spirit will move redemption out. He will do it. And he will not be okay with not doing it. And he will move it out across neighborhood lines and socioeconomic lines and linguistic lines and heart language lines and worship style and artistic taste lines and purchasing lines. And he will move it out. He will do it. And if you are a participator in the presence of the Spirit because you've come to Jesus, He will move it out. And you are a part of that. In some way, somehow, He, you will find, and listen, we'll see examples of this all through the book of Acts for for the next several months. I don't want to put too fine a point on it right this second. But listen, this is not a gospel of loitering that the Holy Spirit is part of. It's just not. The Holy Spirit is driven in all the right compassionate ways to move out. And the significance of speaking in tongues in this context is meant to demonstrate that powerfully. Right? Okay. Let's end with a few sort of, um, a few practical applications, okay? Because you can't, I don't want you to take too much away from this sermon. I want you to just think about a couple of things. So, one, do you believe, if you're a Christian, do you believe and do you actually relish and rejoice in the fact that you live in this moment of the presence and power, and I don't mean to alliterate too much, promise of the Holy Spirit? Peter says, listen to Joel. It is a, the promise for you and your children and anybody who receives it. It is powerful, and God will not just be with you. He will be in you. It is, and you may not feel it. You may not feel it. Some people do, some people don't. God does whatever he wants. That's the next point. But this is this incredible one. Do you care? Do you believe that? Have you given up on it? How, be, be straight with me now. How many of you have been Christians for a while and you have already or after a long experience really just given up on this? 
because you don't feel it enough, because you don't see enough change in your life, because your stupid spouse won't change, you, and says he's a Christian or she's a Christian, you just don't believe it. You just don't believe in the Holy Spirit. And you don't believe God will ever do anything miraculous through you, and you don't believe that God will do anything in terms of personal transformation or do anything that you just don't believe it. You just don't believe it. And listen, you can't go on that way. If you're a Christian, you can't go on that way. It is the promise. Peter says, listen, for now, before heaven, this is the, this is the good stuff. The good stuff is you believe in Jesus. You will be totally forgiven of everything. And the whole purpose of that in this moment, before heaven, is that you're so wiped clean that God himself and the person of this Holy Spirit is going to make his home in you. Do you care? Have you given up on that? Will you give up on giving up on that? Will you be bold about it again? Will you, will you trust God's promise, regardless of what your neurons tell you, and look for evidence of grace in yourself and others, rather than the evidence of the lack of it? One of the books I have to read because I'm a terrible person is this book called Practicing Affirmation. Apparently, people don't like to be criticized all the time, though I feel like I'm really helpful. <laughs> right? And so I'm reading this book called Practicing Affirmation. And the, the author says, listen, the failure to affirm other people is a failure of worship. You look at the Grand Canyon, or you look at the Tetons, or you look at spring finally erupting in— like when those blossoms come out on those cherry trees, I don't care that they don't produce fruit, those thorn apples— my spirit rises to God, okay, in worship because of his creative beauty. And, he's, and the author says, listen, the work of grace that produces godliness and faith and courage and trust is a work of God as much as anything else. And when you fail to look at that and say, God is doing amazing things in you, he says it's a failure. Of, he's totally right. He's totally right. To not look at somebody and see the evidence of grace, that is, the presence of the Holy Spirit changing them, and to say, listen, you're still pretty much a scumbag, but listen, this thing right there, it is unbelievable what God is doing in you. You should be so encouraged, because that's not just evidence that you're becoming a good person. That is evidence that you are really converted, and that God is with you. You should feel great, right? Do you believe this is that time? Will you believe this is that time? Not on the basis of your feelings, but on the basis of the promise, right? The second thing is, is that we have to respect the Holy Spirit's authority, okay? Now, this is hard in two, on two levels. One is, I, um, I sometimes get frustrated with the fact that God seems to be willing to do some things for other people and not for me. The Holy Spirit, if, if his effects can be seen, is patently unfair, okay? Um, you may um, have cancer, pray for somebody with a foot problem to be healed, and they'll get healed and you'll die. Happens all the time. It's just wacky. It's just wacky. It, it, how it works is just no, it just, from our perspective, there's no rhyme or reason to it. Right? 
Some people have this gift. Like, there's some people, like, usually when people come to me, like, man, God was speaking to me this morning, and he said this paragraph, and blah, 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 blah. Usually, I mean, normally my internal response to that is, okay. Ooh. You know, like I generally think, and I feel like they got their, you know, they were feeling something. They were thinking in the right direction. Their emotions kind of took away from it, and that they intuited that that was the Holy Spirit, and it's probably fine, but. But there's other people who are just like, yep, God was speaking to me this morning, and he said blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, it just hits you like a ton of bricks every time they say that. And you're like, he really talks to you, doesn't he? And they're like, yeah. In fact, they're really smart people. They keep it quiet. You know, people hate you for that. Maybe it's just like, because for most of us, it's just not like that. And here's, here's the thing we need to realize. The Holy Spirit is God. He does whatever he wants. Because remember, parenting— Parenting isn't about fairness, right? You shouldn't ever try to be fair with your children. You give to them what they need so that they can flower. And it's going to be different with every kid. And when, when God's—the Holy Spirit sovereignly does whatever he does among us, he does it based on his knowledge of what each individual person needs and in how they should function and touch others and relate to them. And he does it not so that we will have heaven on earth— he does it so that we on earth will believe in heaven and in the gospel of that heaven and in the presence of the Spirit because right now it's just the first fruits. There's all there is, the Holy Spirit shows just enough that you can see enough fruit to know there's a harvest. That's all. It's not a harvest. It just isn't. There's enough. He is the first fruits that he demonstrates and he shows. He says, look, there is going to be a harvest. Praise God for it. Believe God for it. It is coming. And then it blows away in your face, and you think, why isn't there more? And it's because this isn't the time for that. This is the time where all may come in, so that when that moment comes, all who will come can be part of it. Right? What this also means is we need to think more lovingly and carefully in relationship to how we're going to deal with openly charismatic churches. If you don't know what that means, it's okay. But, but a third to a half of the Bible and gospel-believing church in America, and much more than half of it in the world, is charismatic. They believe in just like wildness in the Holy Spirit, right? And their idiom and practice of ministry is very effusively focused on like— the here, the now, the entrepreneurial spirit, and I don't need your permission to try something for God, and let's pray for healing, and let's speak in tongues, and let's prophesy. I think God is saying this, and there's a lot of stuff there that you might be like, eh, but there's a lot of stuff there that there's like, this is the right response, right? And listen, th we're in the same family, and I don't judge my charismatic friends, though I kind of go like this at them sometimes, because, because they believe the gospel, most of them, and they believe the Bible. And when they're getting a little astray, because I love them and they know I love them, I can poke at them and be like, are you sure about that? Are you sure you want to say that? I went to a healing meeting at City Church not that long ago, and there was a guy from out of town who was doing, whipping it up, and I like him. I liked him, but I talked to Tom, who's their senior pastor. I was like, he said this. Do you go along with that? And he said, absolutely not, right? And it was because he was grounded in the scriptures, and he, he was with 90% of it. There were a couple things. He's like, eh. But that's—but part of it is I have a—there's another pastor in town where when I first got to know him, very charismatic pastor, um, 
doing some really neat entrepreneurial things because he doesn't need our permission to do anything, right? But there, there, were, some, there were some tinges of like health, wealth gospel in his preaching. And as I became friends with him, I was able to say, do you really believe this? What about that? Do you want to say it that way? Or does the gospel, does the gospel promise that? Or does it promise this? Is, isn't this what prosperity means in that context? And I have seen over the last few years, his theology kind of tighten up on that. But here's, here's what I can also say. I could show you the bruises right here on my sternum of my charismatic friends poking me in the chest and saying, do you actually believe in the Holy Spirit? Or are you like, you know, this verse means that and somebody should do that at some point and like, you know, and like the Greek here says blah, 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 and that means that person's 3% wrong. Like, are you going to do that or are you going to do that? And also, because here's the thing, listen, I don't care if like the non-charismatic evangelicals are like supposed to be the non If they say we have the Bible and they have the Holy Spirit, my response is baloney, right? That is just, that belongs somewhere in Oscar Mayer, okay? Because— Everybody, everybody who believes the gospel in the Bible needs to believe the Bible. They need to read the Bible well. They need to interpret the Bible well. They need to clarify what the Bible says. They need to understand it very well. And nobody can, can have like a trademark on the Holy Spirit because we all so desperately need Him. We need the Holy Spirit so much. And listen, just because speaking in tongues is clearly God's weirdest gift— is this just not sufficient reason for us to be like, to like take a little Sharpie marker? Oh, let me put my highlighter down and get out my Sharpie marker and cross it out. Like, I, listen, when I was in college, I was in a very charismatic ministry. It was very wacky. And it, it really, I had to recover from that. But listen, I don't, I don't cross that stuff out because they were weird. Okay? They did it weird. I'm gonna do it less weird. Here's the authority. Power of the Holy Spirit flow, it's going to flow through me. And we're going to do, we're going to do stuff. But listen, when I, when I talk to some of these charismatic folks, I was at, I went to some like really charismatic meeting that I got invited to by a couple of other pastors. I mean, these guys are like, anyway, they, they, they get phone calls at a different phone number than I do, okay? And they were talking about their friends who like were in Detroit and like, they're like, what do you think God wants to do? And so he's like, I think we need to, we need to take over that school over there that's like empty. So they just they get flags and stuff. They're just walking around a school. They're praying for it with their flags. And you're like, what do you think this is, Jericho? You're trying to make it fall down? Like, you know, they're just like, I'm like, can you quote a Bible? They're like, we're going to take this for Jesus. Just back up, right? <laughs> and so they're like, they're like, okay. And so then they're like, they go to the city people. And they're like, can we, can you give us keys to that thing? We want to go in there and do stuff for kids. And the, the city people are like, Okay. Hand them the keys. They start some after-school program. All of a sudden, there's 500 kids going to it. And they're like, and the city's like, you probably need some money. Don't you need some money? And they give them some money. Then they turn the building over to them. Like, they give them the building legally, right? And I'm just kind of like, and I feel like, sometimes non-charismatic evangelists, I feel like we're, we're, we think we're professionals. We're in this little cubicle. We have this job. We're like, we're like Bible bureaucrats. And we're like, I'm, I'm gonna have to sign off on that. And no, you cannot build that there. And here's the, you need to have more gravel and the right incline. And like, you know, we, we're gonna get it right here. And I feel like these guys are like entrepreneurial crazies, like trying to find the South Pole of something. And we're like, like, I like that they are bugging me, okay? Now, does that mean we're going to do flags next week? Yes. Yeah, no. <laughs> Probably not going to do flags next week. But, 
Man, don't you want to be pushed by people? But here's what we have to have. Listen, if we're going to have these brothers and sisters that are close to us, but like they function in kind of a different idiom than we do, and we, we work together, but we also do things a little differently, and it's, it's like in love and in unity, and also in a little bit of like, okay, let's see what you're doing. All churches for lots of different kinds of people, right? If we're going to do that right, we cannot have less of a doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We have to have more of a doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We have to know what, we have to interact with what they're thinking and what this says and what we believe and how does this and what, how does the Holy Spirit do the ministry of illumination and empowering of holiness and to what extent do the, the miraculous gifts interact with these things and how does that, we need to really think about this stuff and have a really robust theology of the Holy Spirit. Not a narrow one of like, yeah, he illuminates the scriptures and gets people saved and makes us act good. Those are all true and they're awesome and that was a lot of spit, but— but he does so much more than that, too. And listen, we cannot be telling God what we'll take and what we won't. We just can't be doing that, okay? We can't be doing that. And so we've got to find a way to be 100% faithful to who the Holy Spirit is. And we'll have several months to meditate on this because the Holy Spirit is all through the book of Acts. But today, as you go away, today, Will you ask this question? Is your picture of salvation in any way compatible with the Holy Spirit? <laughs> or are you looking to a totally different power? What are you hoping to escape and hoping to attain by some means? What is your picture of the good life? What end do you wish for yourself and others? Is it what he thinks? Is it what Jesus? And then secondly, what is your hope of empowerment for that thing? Do you, as a Christian, believe that the Holy Spirit is the first in— you may use other powers in the world, but is His power, even if you don't feel it, but still by faith knowing it's operating in and on you, is that the empowerment you're really looking to? Is that what you're putting your hope in? Is, is that—are we even on the, in the right zip code here? And are you willing to see that power increase by aligning more with what the one who is that power wishes to do in and through you? And are you willing to believe that whatever he will do in and through you, if you as you align with him, is a better salvation than the one you already believe in? And a better life— than you can possibly concoct for yourself. Because if you do, and you'll put your trust in him, he will always fulfill his promise. Let's pray. Father, as we, um, as we get ready to close here and take just a few couple of minutes to think about this. Would you please just come and do what you want to do? Holy Spirit, please um, inflict your love upon us in such a way as that we can see, know, hear, and believe what we should. I pray that anybody who is not a Christian, that you would be, um, you would be helping them see Christ and their great need of union with you 
and that the way that you created for that is Christ's death and resurrection, that they have to just have to put their faith in him and that you will save, forgive, and give the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I pray for, I want to pray especially for people who've been a Christians for a while and who really have just given up on walking deeply with the Holy Spirit, probably because of some misconception that created a expectation that then didn't happen. Would you reset us in faith, re-clarify our expectations, and help us to walk with you in a way that we never thought we would do? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Why don't we stand